independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. What we're working on is this broader reusables infrastructure. And this can really scale to anything that comes in disposable packaging. So anything that comes in disposable packaging will have a reusables option in the future. And we're building that reusable infrastructure to to drive that, to accelerate the world's transition to that future. How do our current consumption system and ways of waste management and recycling methods basically set us up for failure when we're wanting to address our waste issues? What sorts of structural or systemic shifts do we need in society to render disposable packaging obsolete? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and Buffy, which makes betting that's earth-friendly and cruelty-free. Its newest comforter is called The Breeze, made 100% from eucalyptus fiber to regulate temperature and keep us cool and comfortable all night long. You can actually try it out in your own bed for free, and if you don't love it, you can return it at no cost. Visit Buffy.co to learn more and use the discount code GREENDREAMER for $20 off. That's B-U-F-F-Y dot C-O and GREENDREAMER for $20 off. For now to our conversation with Tamara Lim, the founder of The Wally Shop, which is America's first zero-waste grocery delivery service that sources from local farmers markets and bulk shops. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Growing up in Taiwan, I grew up in a household where my dad would compost everything we ate. He would be very sensitive about the temperatures. He'd actually insist on composting indoors, (laughs) which was not always great from a smell perspective, but just really grew up in a family because we... we, we live on, you know, one of the many mountains in Taiwan. And so really grew up with like a garden, growing our own mangoes, avocados, composting, going to the local fisheries with my dad and and just really having that sort of upbringing. And then also just in the summer times, going to the beach with my dad was one of my favorite pastimes. That's probably why I'm so tan all the time. <laughs> but I just remember distinctly, there'd be times like year after year, of course it changes, but sometimes you, we would just go to one of our regular spots and just see it completely littered with plastic and it would just not be somewhere we could go that summer. And that was something that always stuck to me. And my dad would always, always tell the same story about how when he was growing up in Taiwan, the water was so clean, so clear, you could literally see the fish swimming. Mm-hmm. And now we're like, we're absolutely polluting our planet. We need to do what we can to protect it. So whenever he saw trash or litter, he'd always make it a point to pick it up and throw it away. And that that image 
has always stuck in my head. And I think just really having that solid foundation that my dad especially really gave me was really the springboard for me. Mm. And then what was it that later solidified this focus on sustainability in your career? Yeah, so went to college, did not study sustainability, went to work at Amazon straight out of college. And it was really there that I was managing the packaging and shipping retail category. I was managing five, but that was one of them. And in that particular category, I'd have to attend a lot of trade shows and speak to a lot of our vendors. And it was from that category, managing that category, that I really became aware of the intricacies and the crux of the our waste problem. So I think as a consumer and as someone who has that sort of like strong foundation sustainably. I've always known that we ha- we have a waste problem, but I never really understood what was driving it or really took the time to really delve deeper into it. And so it was from managing this category, speaking to the vendors and understanding their challenges with recycling. I started to research more and more. And as I did, I started to realize that this is definitely a problem that we can prevent and a problem that we can fix. And I felt just very passionately about it. And I looked out into the landscape, did not see anyone working on this problem, yet understood that this is a problem that affects every single person on this planet and just felt like my skill sets, having worked at Amazon, my passion for sustainability, given my affinity towards problem solving, I felt like I could definitely create a solution that could scale and really make a difference. And since I didn't see anyone else doing it, I felt strongly that I had to take this into my own hands. And so what was missing from the picture? So what were we missing in terms of our current recycling system that needed to be fixed? Yeah. So first it started started with a problem. So what we know from the get-go is the way we don't have an effective way to manage waste. That's why we're ending up with plastics in our water, in the food we're eating, and just completely, you know, if you just walk out onto the streets in New York City, you just see us, the streets overflowing with cardboard boxes. So it's very clear that we do not have an effective way. And so that's the starting point. And so if you look at the solutions we have, we've got landfilling, obviously that's not a solution. You've got recycling, you've got incineration, but you can sort of see across all of them that there are difficulties. So obviously landfilling does not work. Recycling was sort of the world's ticket towards a more sustainable way to to manage our waste. But when you really look into it, A, it's highly inconvenient, which is why we're struggling from an adoption standpoint, from consumers actually understanding how to recycle properly. So that's been really tough for recycling as a solution. But there's a lot of other challenges that come with it. So a lot has to go right with recycling for a product to actually go from someone's bin to becoming a new product. And throughout that process, it actually proves to be very ineffective and inefficient. So optimistically speaking, only 40% of what you put into the recycling bin actually gets turned into a new product. And today in the US, much less so since China stopped taking our recycling. And so it was really clear that the solutions that we had in place just do not work. And so with the analogy of sort of you've got a leaking faucet and water is spilling on the ground, you want to first try to turn off the faucet. Then you have a chance to sweep up the the leakage. And so that's how I came to the solution of reusables. How can we prevent waste in the first place since dealing with waste after it's been created is actually proving to be a very difficult problem. And so I started looking into reusables and it actually turns out to be a really, really viable solution. Not only does it prevent waste in the first place, which is way better, it actually fits seamlessly into the current consumer experience where you can have things delivered and it's convenient and all of that good stuff. But it also has the ability to reduce cost for consumers because packaging typically takes up 10% of a product's cost and we're eliminating that. So we're being sustainable and economical at the same time. I want to go back to the China ban. So China stopped 
or they became really strict about the types of recyclables that they would accept from other countries. I think previously we had a lot of contamination in in the recy- yes. in the recyclables that we sent them, which made it really hard for them to actually recycle these products. And now I think they are becoming just really strict on the bulks of recyclables needing to not be contaminated by a certain percentage. Basically, the United States couldn't just dump our trash on them anymore. And all of a sudden, we had to deal with our own waste. So being in the field at this time, how do you see this as having affected our own recycling industry? And what does this mean for us? What China was asking from the U.S. was a contamination rate of less than 3%, which if you really you know, know what the stats are with where recycling is currently today, that's basically impossible for them to achieve because in a lot of cities like New York City, we have dual stream, which means we're mixing. So paper is one stream and we're mixing metals, plastics, and really everything else into one other stream, which causes a lot of contamination. And so with that, it, it's virtually impossible to, to achieve that low 3% rate. Essentially, I think this hit the West Coast more so than the East Coast, because in New York, there's actually quite a few recyclers here. So for example, there's Pratt here that that still takes the cardboard boxes and actually does recycling domestically. But, you know, from what I I know, and, and you probably are more up to date on this, but at least states like Oregon are still ending up landfilling their recycling right now. Mm-hmm. There's just no solution. The issue is with the entire system. You cannot be mixing recycling or different materials together, or you need to at least have a very strict protocol on how to clean it, which if we know consumers today is not something that is likely to scale without very, very strict enforcement. So when you're talking about a solution like that and you look out into the future, you really you really see a lot of difficulties up ahead. And that's why it's very clear to me that we need a better solution, one that is going to have a much easier rate to de- path to adoption. And so I actually view reusables as being able, I know with the wallet shop right now, we're starting with a very finite group of products where we're penetrating the market. But what we're working on is this broader reusables infrastructure. And this can really scale to anything that comes in disposable packaging. So anything that comes in disposable packaging will have a reusables option in the future. And we're building that reusable infrastructure to to drive that, to accelerate the world's transition to that future. So basically, you saw the importance of starting earlier on in the process and focusing on prevention in the first place. So in light of this, you started the Wally shop to help tackle waste but again, from a different angle, instead of focusing on the back end, to focus on the front end. Can you share your inspiration behind creating the Wally Shop and what exactly the company does today? My inspiration to creating Wally Shop started with definitely from, again, my time at Amazon. I chose to leave with this very distinct drive to find a solution, one that can scale to our waste problem. And so and I know you know this because, you know, we've sort of been in contact about this even before the Wally Shop days, but we had tried a recycling execution. So one that would, you know, make the recycling process a little bit more pure and less contaminated, but that didn't work. And, and you know, we launched around the time of China Band, and we also discovered all of the issues that I kind of mentioned previously about the inconveniences to it and the issues with adoption. And so we ultimately went back to the drawing board and said, okay, well, if recycling is not working, can we reuse? And that's how we 
you know, sort of landed with the current execution of the Wally Shop today, it wasn't always a straight path. It was, all right, so if you think about the world, we started off landfilling, which is just throwing things away. So you've got the whole funnel of reduce, reuse, recycle, and then you throw away. So we've kind of started with throwing away. Then we tried recycling. It doesn't work. And now we're trying reusables. And so that's sort of where I see we are in this whole waste journey as a a species. And then how does the Wally Shop work today for consumers? We're starting off with grocery delivery, because if you look at an average consumer's waste bin, majority of it comes from the grocery store. So we wanted to start with the sort of the largest source of waste. And so right now we on the Wally Shop, people can go to buy farm fresh, local, organic, locally produced groceries and products. So we sell everything from vegetables to face lotion, so personal care products. Everything will come in entirely reusable, returnable packaging that you just return on a future delivery. So it's really, really convenient. It's very easy. You pay a deposit upon checkout for the packaging that you receive, um, and you get that deposit back when you return it. Essentially, it's it facilitates a greener delivery process, and there you guys don't have a warehouse, and you don't have to worry about overstocking? We do have a warehouse. Okay. Yeah, we have a warehouse in Bushwick or East Williamsburg. It's kind of blurred. But what we do is we actually partner with local farmers, local grocers, and local producers. So they provide the produce, and we just provide the fulfillment service and the reusable packaging. So we're there to make sure that everything will come in this reusable, returnable packaging format and make sure it's truly uh, abides by that strict policy. And we're there to provide the logistics to get it to them from the small producers to you, the consumers. And this is really, we see ourselves as not only are we facilitating a convenient way to live more sustainability, one that's also economical, but we're also supporting the local grocers, the local farmers, the ones that, you know, in this very competitive environment where you've got larger chains like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's really coming in and, and capturing the market. These smaller shops are struggling where we're offering them logistics to help them continue to thrive and survive because this is the, you know, I think local shops really increase standard of living. And I think that we need to really fight to make sure they still exist. And so that's actually why we're named the Wally Shop. Wally really comes from, we're paying tribute to the Dabawalas in Mumbai, India. It's a co-op group that delivers lunch tiffin boxes from office workers from their homes to their offices. The interesting part is they actually, once the office workers are done eating it, they actually deliver the tiffin boxes back to their homes. It's this amazing organization. They don't use a single ounce of technology. They deliver thousands of, of orders every day, and they're never, ever late. And what they're doing is actually very similar to what we do. So it's a many-to-many logistics problem because there are many households and then there are many office buildings. Mm. But the interesting thing is to actually bring it back again, which is what we also do. They use reusable tip-in boxes. And so we actually learned a lot from the Dabawalas and, and what they do every single day. And so as a tribute to them, we named ourselves Wally. The reason why it's the Wally shop, because the Wally shop sounds like your local bodega, your local shop. And it's really meant to remind us and represent the local shops and local producers that we serve every day and remind us to always remember that and not lose sight of that. What was the most challenging part for you in bringing this idea to life where you're based? I think the number one thing was probably for me, 
the fact that it wasn't always a smooth journey, like I mentioned, we had initially osteoworks and we had to go through that learning, that initial failure of trying something and execution and not having it work. But then sort of letting, taking that learning and bouncing back and creating something even stronger. You know, I'm a first time founder. Prior to this, I was, you know, like I said, I was in college and then I went to work at Amazon. So, of course, all the challenges with starting a company from incorporation to how do you build a website to how do you form a team and how do you seek fundraising, all of that good stuff. But I'd say overall, being a first time founder, what I've learned is most challenges that come our way is solvable and just making sure to always remember that, you know, hey, yes, this seems like a really difficult problem, but so was the problem last month and we were able to solve that and always maintaining that positive outlook and that drive to problem solve all the time. And another thing that was actually really interesting for me being a first-time founder was how important it was, it is, to find the right people to work with. And so that's something that I actually spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, I'm very careful before I onboard or or bring anyone onto the team. I always do a six-week trial, of course, prior to that screening. But once, you know, they've passed all the screening, they've, you know, we've really gone into a point of understanding. I think that they're going to be a good fit. They they go on, they always go on a six-week trial with me just to see, to make sure that they work well with the team. And that's really, really important because, you know, when it's a small team, every person counts and you really want to make sure that you have the right fit. And that really transpires down to even our couriers. So the number one thing we hear a lot from our customers, because they actually, you know, every time they order, they get an email and they have the ability to submit a feedback. The number one thing we hear is how much people enjoy our couriers and Mm -hmm. how they're very friendly, that you can tell that they care about the business. And that's really, really important to me. I just feel like in the end of the day, when you're talking about local, when you're talking about um, small businesses, what is at the crux of that is people. And so I want to make sure that the people working with us enjoy being there. They align with what we're doing. And I think that that is something that transpires when people use the service and can really see that um, you know, in their day-to-day action. Uh, interactions with our couriers that are able to answer their questions about the reusable packaging, give advice about the Apple or all of that little stuff. So definitely the human aspect was something that I did not anticipate, but is a huge, huge important thing when starting a business. Well, today in attempt to try to solve the varied social and environmental issues that we have, I feel like people increasingly have ideas on what they want to do to support a better future, but they may get stuck in the ideas phase for all sorts of reasons. So having, you know, been through this learning journey for yourself, what would your biggest pieces of guidance be for someone passionate about something and wanting to bring that to life? I think the number one thing I subscribe to is If you give yourself, if you sort of take a longer view on your life and you say, okay, well, I'm going to give myself 10 years to work on this problem, it sort of relieves some of the pressure because I think that's the number one thing is that that self, that pressure that we put on ourselves to succeed and always, you know, just always succeed and, and be right. And that's what oftentimes puts people off from taking the risk necessary, the leap necessary to maybe starting your own business or creating your own solution. So I think if you take a longer view and you sort of say, okay, well, reasonably speaking, 
it'll probably take me 10 tries. So I'll probably fail nine times, but then maybe if I just succeed that one time, that's all I need. And I'm giving myself 10 years. It relieves some of that pressure and it gives you that freedom to take that leap without all that pressure and think of creative solutions and try many different things, which is what is super necessary when you're creating something new and doing something for the first time. And so, yeah, I've I've always sort of, and this is something I tell myself every day and all the time, whenever I'm trying something new is, I'm going to try this and it's totally okay if it doesn't work out. I'm giving myself nine times to fail and I might as well just try it. And if it doesn't work out, I don't really lose anything. Mm. So definitely relieving that pressure and if you just go for it, it can be, and if you try to build it in a really scrappy way. So every time I try to do something, I really try to think about how do you do this in the most, the quickest and cheapest and fastest way possible. And typically I can come up with something that's quite scrappy and I can turn, for example, we built the website in a month's time. And before that, everyone I spoke to said it was impossible, but we found a way to do that. Um, whenever we're, we're trying something, we, we just think about what is the easiest, quickest, fastest way to try it, just to, like, a, like a science experiment. Mm. And that's really, really helped so much. So today, the Wally Shop started in Brooklyn for local residents, but I know that you're expanding into Manhattan, and I know that you're constantly getting requests from people elsewhere wanting the Wally Shop to go to their area next. And truly, what you're doing is making a better consumption system possible, which means that you can make a bigger positive impact as you expand. Do you think that this is the case for all sustainability-focused brands, or what are your thoughts on the role of small businesses versus scalable ones in helping us realize a more sustainable future? That's a good question. I think everyone's purpose is different, so it really depends on what type of business or solution you're creating. So like you said, with our business in particular, the larger we grow, it means that we are reducing the amount of waste because that's our mission. That's what we're doing. So it makes sense from a sustainability perspective for us to try to grow and reach as many people as we can because that's our number one mission, right? How do we reduce waste? How do we solve our waste problem? I think that's also, it depends Like if you're a business that creates a lot of ways, maybe from a sustainability perspective, it doesn't make sense for you to grow so big. But also for small businesses, a lot of, I I really think every little bit counts. So if you're a small business and you, you make the leap to paper straws instead of plastic straws, that goes a long way because everyone who walks in your door is going to see that and you're reinforcing sustainability in their mind. And the number one thing I subscribe to, and I didn't come up with this, it's obviously something I've seen kind of getting passed along, but something I really believe in is we don't need a handful of people doing it perfectly. We need a lot of people doing it imperfectly. And so I think every little bit counts, and I really, really subscribe to that. And for you, what do you look for when you think about the feasibility of the Wally Shop expanding into any given city or location? Because you have a hyper-local approach where it's not possible to just apply a simple blanket solution across the board. The beauty of what we're doing at the Wally Shop is we're really just a logistics that enhances or connects what a city has to offer with their consumers. And so as we scale and as we expand, we'd likely just be picking up our logistics infrastructure and reusables infrastructure and plugging into the city and working with the local producers there, local grocers there, and connecting them with their local consumers. And so it's almost like the scalable approach, but creating this hyper-local experience everywhere we go. And that's something that really, really, I guess, keeps me up at night and gets me really excited because 
this is where I think the future is heading. I think we're heading towards a very hyper-local experience because A, the food just tastes that much better and B, it's much more sustainable. And it doesn't make sense to be trucking, you know, I don't know, mangoes all the way from Thailand to to the US. It, it, it doesn't taste as good. It, it's highly unsustainable. And so I believe we're moving towards this hyper-local experience and the Wally Shop is really there just to accelerate us to that future. Mm. Well, accessibility to living more sustainably is definitely something that you tackle, especially in terms of time, because oftentimes that's the limiting factor for people and people may not be able to afford the time to go out of their way to bulk shops when they really need something or the time to perfectly match their schedules with farmer's market days and hours. And going beyond this, how do you think we can collectively also make fresh, healthy food more available and accessible to people living in places that farmers markets currently don't even serve right now in our food deserts? I think that that's definitely something that is a huge problem. Right now, I will say since the Wally Shop's starting and we've just started, we have to be very conscious of where we are in our journey. And so we're starting with a very last mile approach, which is within metropolitan cities and largely the large metropolitan cities. And we're starting there. And what we plan on doing is building up this infrastructure at each metropolitan cities. And once we can hit that scale, our next phase and what we would like to tackle at that point, of course, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, is how can we continue to increase the geography that we're able to service? Because our mission, again, going back to our mission, is to reduce waste. And in order to do that, we need to we need to be able to service the most amount of people we can. Right now, the reality of our situation is we're sort of limited by the infrastructure that we have in place. And so the Wally Shop is starting with Last Mile and building up that Last Mile infrastructure. But based on our mission, it makes a lot of sense for us when the time comes to start thinking about how we can really expand that outside of just metropolitan cities and extend that even further out, given that we really want to be bringing this solution to every single person. And in the grander scheme of things, Instead of just selling greener products, you're trying to change the system and process of people's purchases. So it's not telling people to buy more, but it's allowing people to buy better without drastically changing their lives. And I think that if we want to make drastic positive changes in this time of need, we do have to think through this perspective because it's just really hard to force change upon people and their established habits and lifestyles. And it's much easier to create better solutions that at the same time also improve people's lives in some way. So I'm curious, as you were brainstorming your ideas and thinking through this systems lens, what do you see as some other currently broken or problematic areas of modern society that most urgently need structural shifts and solutions to make it easier for people to live more sustainably? So we're we're creating infrastructure for reusables, and that's the medium that a lot of foods and products come in. So we're disrupting and we're really innovating in that space. But there's a lot that needs to be done as well on the actual product stage. So we're talking about how do you make it more feasible for people, for farmers to be organic? How do you make it more feasible for for more people to, to become local producers? And really building up that infrastructure and that from the supply side. And that's a really interesting one. I do believe that the Wally Shop can actually positively impact that problem as well. If we make it super convenient for people to have access to these products, the likelihood that they'll continue, uh, more people will start 
purchasing these products will increase. So as volume increases, traditionally what you'll see is you'll see an increase in the supply side. So that's what we're hoping to happen. But that being said, there still needs to be a lot of support and innovation to really help and, and facilitate the supply side of local organic fair trade products and produce. And what do you think we as consumers can do to support a more hyper-local and fair trade and sustainable community? Vote with your dollar. I know that's tough because not everyone shares the same income and can't afford to, but the ones who can, and if you find yourself in that lucky position, definitely vote with your dollar because as you vote with your dollar, you're increasing supply and as supply increases, price decreases. And so we need to start the change from the top so it can funnel down to a bigger volume. And to close off, I'd love for you to share your vision of a thriving future where packaging has become obsolete. So what does that picture look like to you and what do you think we need most to be able to get there? What I view as the reusable's future is really just imagine anything that currently comes in packaging right now, but in a reusable format. So anything you order online will come in a reusable either box or tote. And then the products itself will also be, especially the consumables in reusable packaging, for durables, so durable products that won't really share the same packaging requirement, but the products themselves, so think of a broom, the materials that they'll be made out of will either, it's, it's either going to come, if it's a machine or, or high value product, it's going to come in a leasing format. So you'd lease it so that the company's incentivized to build it to last. And then if it's a broom, so something like that, the materials would be built in a way where the manufacturer considered the end of life. So either it's going to be easy to deconstruct and recycle or repurposed. What I see that looking like on a day-to-day basis as a person going through the, my day-to-day life in this reusable future is I'll walk into a coffee shop. Instead of ha- I don't even have to bring in my reusable cup. I'll be able to go there, order a coffee. It'll come in a reusable cup that I can either enjoy there and give it back to them, or I'll you know take it with me, go to the office, and drop it off in a bin where I know it's going to be washed, sanitized, and put back into circulation again. Or I'll just simply return it on my next delivery to any service or drop it off at any partner restaurant or shop. If you go shopping for something, the bag that it's going to come in is going to be in a reusable bag versus a paper bag or plastic bag. The thing that I think is really going to make propel us to this future, and the reason why I think that this is why I'm so adamant and and can really see this being the future that we're going to live in is because reusables, like I mentioned, fits seamlessly into the consumer experience today. So I'm not asking, we're not asking people to, hey, you have to bring around your reusable, you know, jars or toes, which we're doing today because we have to. In the future, it, it'll be fit seamlessly into our current consumer experience. We don't have to change anything. Everything will just inherently be reusable. And secondly, it's more cost effective. So it's actually going to reduce prices for consumers. Right now, we spend an obscene amount of our dollar spend on packaging that we end up throwing away. And when we throw it away, our tax dollars are going to um, cleaning up the waste that we're producing. And we're also paying for it on the the other side in the form of health uh, and medical bills because we are still understanding 
the implications of ingesting all this microplastic. We do know, we have some early studies as to how it affects our reproduction. It affects some our brains and some neural diseases that come, from, come with that, but we're still understanding the effects of it. And so we're also paying for it in the form of medical bills. And so the reason why I think that this will be the future is because it makes sense. It's more cost-effective where it fits seamlessly into our customer, current customer experience. And just by making the switch, we're going to dramatically clean up our waste problem. It definitely sounds like it's possible because we already have things that exist today that kind of take on that same model. So if we think about food courts and how people eat using the bowls and plates that are in the food courts and they just leave it there and everything gets collected to be washed and reused. Or even at a larger scale, cities that have bike sharing programs where people can ride their bikes to wherever they need to go and then just leave it there. And then that bike gets reused by somebody else or just stays in that circulation. So um, what you're talking about is this just really scaled to a citywide and nationwide and maybe global level as well. Yeah. And another thing that you just reminded me, but another thing that really is a reason why I definitely think that it'll exist is if you think about it, what we're proposing isn't necessarily something new. So if you think back to the days of the milkmen, this is something that we used to do just because it made economic sense. We reused the glass milk glass jars because it made sense, made more sense economically than to, to throw it away. The only reason why we shifted from the milkman model to disposable packaging is because we started to have the rise of personal cars, rise of one-stop shops and supermarkets, and people started moving out to suburban areas. But if you look at where we are today, with the rise of technology and with the rise of people moving back into urban centers, we're seeing an increase in home deliveries again. And we're also seeing the intersection of of growing conscious consumers because we're getting educated, we're, we're finally starting to understand the extent of our current wasteful habits and how it's affecting our health. And so we've got the rise of the conscious consumer. Both these two trends intersecting is why reusables and home delivery is coming back in again. And so the idea, the fact that this existed in the past because it made sense, and the fact that right now it makes sense again for this to exist is another reason why I definitely think that this will continue to grow and become the norm. This episode was brought to you by Buffy and its new comforter, The Breeze, which is hypoallergenic with no down, no polyester fill, but made entirely from eucalyptus fiber, which helps us to stay cozy without overheating. I'm actually trying it out right now. It is super soft, and personally, I do prefer natural fiber for things that come into contact with my skin. And plus, we do spend almost half of our lives in bed, so it is important what our bedding is made of, and this is definitely a winner for me. But you can see for yourself because you can try it for free and return it at no cost if you don't love it. For $20 off, visit Buffy.co and enter your discount code GREENDREAMER. That's B-U-F-F-Y dot C-O and GREENDREAMER for $20 off. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? I love following Stevie A. She's just so funny and she takes this really casual approach to sustainability, so I highly recommend following her. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I remind myself every day throughout the late nights and all the problems that arise that what we're working on has a chance to impact every single person on this planet. And that's what keeps me going. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Definitely sleeping away from my phone. So I've started charging my phone in the kitchen so that (laughs) 
the first thing I do when I wake up is not look at my phone and start looking through email and working. Um, and it's done wonders. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? I'm trying to eat way less meat. So starting off with maybe one day a week, I'm trying to expand that to two days. And I think that not only am I seeing a positive change in my body, it, it is also way more sustainable. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? The fact that I'm seeing a groundswell of consumer voices and people just demanding change. And honestly, that's what is giving us the opportunity to even exist in the first place and have a fighting chance at making this the future. Well, where can we go to follow your work and support you online? Follow us at The Wally Shop on Instagram. It's where we announce everything. We ask for suggestions on products. You can really influence the way The Wally Shop is being built. We, we share problems. So recently we had a case of the exploding kombucha. We, we turned to our community there. So definitely follow us on, on Instagram. It's the best place to keep up to date. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep doing what you're doing. Don't let the big problem overwhelm you. Every little bit counts and keep being awesome. Every little bit counts and keep being awesome. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in and thank you to our listener patrons for supporting Green Dreamer to continue. In case you haven't heard, I just started Green Dreamer on YouTube, so head on over to greendreamer.com slash YouTube to subscribe and feel welcome to let me know, as always, what types of video content you'd like to see. For me to be able to continue this podcast and expand the YouTube channel and our multimedia journal, I really, really could use your support because this is an independent platform. There's no corporate media funding behind this. So if you believe that more people should hear these conversations and messages and you're able to, you can become a patron and access additional content starting at $1 per month. You can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. Alternatively, as always, you can share the episode you're listening to on social media or with friends. And you can also write a brief review in the podcast app on what you're enjoying. These are all things that can really support the show as well. Thank you for whatever you're able to contribute. Every bit really helps. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.